Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder with the Oklahoman's Watchdog Desk. And today is Wednesday, November 22nd, one day away from Turkey Day. So it's possible that some of you out there might be listening as a as an escape or a break from uh, Aunt Edna's crazy political philosophy that she uh, shares every year. Um, um, maybe not. Maybe uh, maybe this is just uh, maybe you were out there working off some of that uh, big meal. Uh, whatever you are listening this week, we appreciate it. Uh, coming to you a day earlier because of the Thanksgiving holiday. In studio with me is the Oklahomans federal reporter, Justin Wingeter. Justin, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. Uh, instead, you get our political philosophies rather than and Edna's, or at least our political analysis. Yes, right which in. you may agree with or, or not agree with, <laughs> yeah. uh, depending on where you're coming from. Uh, Dale Dinwall is uh, at the Capitol. He's not joining us this week, but he's trying to finish up his stories before the Thanksgiving holiday. And the legislature just won't leave him alone. No. They won't let him go home. Nope. It's just every time, every time, what is it, the Godfather saying? Every time he, th- he thought he was out, they pull him back in. And uh, <laughs> we saw that last week when um, the governor vetoed the budget bill. Uh, she says she's going to call for another special session. And then this week, yesterday, uh, she signs an executive order that uh, makes a move towards uh, consolidation of public schools and university services. We'll get into that a little bit today in this episode. And uh, the uh, tax debate continues in Washington. And uh, Justin, let's actually start there. Um, okay. Where where are we at with, with this tax overhaul bill? Um, and what is the perceptive, uh, the perception of um, of our, our local local delegates? So the House passed um, their version last week. Um, the Senate will take it up after Thanksgiving, uh, as early as next week. Um, the Senate will take up a different bill. So obviously, uh, as our listeners know, once something passes the House and a different bill passes the Senate, you have to have a conference committee to figure those bills out, come up with one bill, which will then come up for a vote in the House and Senate. And... Those votes are expected to be close. Um, we saw a small business group this week targeted uh, Senator Langford with ads in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Uh, six figures uh, TV ad buys there, so uh, dropping some cash to try to dissuade him from voting for this, so or uh, persuade him to vote no on this. So uh, they're really targeting, even though their beef is largely as small business owners, that it helps um, corporations too much. They're going to target them on something that speaks to Lankford, which is the debt. Um, Lankford has said before that he will not vote for something that increases the national debt. Uh, this bill, the Senate bill, is expected to do that by $1.5 trillion. So they think they have them here. They, they think there is, uh, they can get a few Republicans um, who are largely opposed to raising the national debt, Lankford included, to vote against this. If all Democrats and three Republicans vote against it, much like we saw with the health care debate, then the bill is dead in the Senate. So uh, there's an interesting effort here. And, and Lankford, by making those statements a couple weeks ago on MSNBC, 
that he would not vote for something that increases the national debt has put a spotlight on him. And we talked last week uh, that that is usually not what Inhofe or Lankford would do. Lankford's a little more comfortable in the spotlight than Inhofe probably, but neither of them want to be the deciding vote on something as enormous as tax reform. They didn't want to be that on health care either. So um, Lankford, but but by making some statements about the debt, uh, Lankford has kind of put himself in that spotlight, whether he meant to or not. He's there now. And uh, opponents of tax reform believe that they have a, a uh, that they can persuade him to vote no on this. So, what was the strength of his statements? I mean, was he clear, like uh, you know, a dollar more to the deficit, and I'm against this, or or was did he qualify that with uh, not too much? I mean, what, how how forceful was he in talking about that? As I recall, he said, "Right now, I'm a no," referring to how the bill looked then. It has since been changed, but it has not been changed in any way that cuts down on its effect on the debt. Um, so he, he would seem to be a, a no on the bill now if those statements are still true. And, um, and he said, he made very clear that I, I don't like raising the national debt. and almost any analysis, uh, says at least in the short term, this bill certainly does. Obviously when the government takes in $1.5 trillion less than it would have before, unless you cut the government spending by that amount or raise revenue from some other uh, pool of money, then you're going to increase the national debt. That's just the way it goes. I mean, uh, that's simple arithmetic. So it would seem that um, based on those statements, he was still a no. Uh, now, he strongly favors tax reform of some sort. Um, so something could change here, um, or I may be misreading that. So, But at least opponents of tax reform believe that, they're, that he is in their corner or they can um, get him there in time for the vote, uh, which could be as early as next week. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, you know, uh, representatives and senators, I mean, they have to get reelected. That's kind of what they're focused on. Have you got any kind of sense that Lankford would would still have some cover here in Oklahoma if he voted for the for the tax bill, even though it may add to the debt, which I imagine a lot of Oklahomans are against, um, but are even more for some kind of overhaul to the tax system? I would guess yes. I mean, if I had to, if I had to say yeah, and most people are going to look out for their own um, pocketbook first, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I, if you tell people that yeah, they're they're going to pay less in taxes next year or two years or whatever from now, that's going to resonate a lot more clearly with the debt. the The dangers of the debt are uh, debated and somewhat off in the distance, I mean, you know, to what extent that uh, is going to have ramifications for the country is, uh, you know, debatable and certainly not immediate. So uh, whereas taxes, I mean, whether or not you have an extra few hundred dollars or thousands of dollars uh, in your pocket next year or a few years from now means a lot more to the average person. So I think unless you're the most principled of conservatives on the debt, that this is going to, um, a tax reform is going to be something you generally like. And I can't imagine Lankford taking too much flack from his constituency if he does vote in favor of it. Well, you talk about how, depending on how principled you are against raising the debt, I would 
I can think of at least a few that I think in, in the Senate that are even even more principled than Langford is in that area. To where if he's if if he's unwilling to vote for this tax bill because it raises the deficit, um, I imagine there's going to be several other Republicans that would join. Right. He's not going to be the yeah. only one or the first one to say that. Yeah, it's a good point. Yep, and. Um and yeah, clearly that's where opponents of tax reform think that they can get a few of these Republicans to come over. And because they're, I mean, something like the small business group that is running ads right now, their appeal is largely that you're helping corporations too much and you're not helping small businesses enough. And that unfairly gives corporations an edge. That's not an argument that um, is going to win over Langford and Inhoff as much, certainly as something like don't raise the debt. The debt poses a serious threat. And increasing the deficits or debt uh, is ultimately a bad thing. That latter argument uh, is a much better argument for trying to convince James Lankford. And so that's the argument they're going with. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, we'd be interested to see how that argument goes. And I think we talked last week about the fact that uh, for Lankford, this may be, and for many other members that are kind of on the fence. I mean, they're not just waiting to see, to learn more about the bill. They're waiting to learn more about their colleagues and how they're <laughs> yeah, going to vote. Absolutely. I mean, Langford, like we've said, Langford's not going to be the first one to cast that no vote from the Senate side, and he wouldn't be, um, but he's not going to be the deciding vote. So if you saw um, several others fall, um, then maybe he would too, feeling like that there's some political coverage there. Right. And, and the, on the House side, um, you know, here in Oklahoma City, Democrats who are challenging Steve Russell have been pretty quiet. I mean, they've been campaigning, they've been fundraising, which is normal. We're, well, now a little less than a year out from the election, but um, have previously been more than a year out. So there's a little, you usually don't get into a lot of public policy debates, you know, more than a year before an election, because unless it's a presidential election, because people just don't want to hear it for the most part. Yeah. I mean, house, house races are almost constantly running in, in some format. They run every two years, obviously. And you just have to almost always campaign. So, And most people don't want to hear that. So, But this tax reform debate is an issue, and healthcare was the other one, where Democrats challenging Steve Russell think they really have something here that they can beat him up on. And they're going to run um, more along that, that first argument I mentioned earlier, that this unfairly helps corporations and the wealthy. And... Uh, ignores the lower middle class Oklahomans, which make up uh, much of this district here in Oklahoma City. So this is interesting that um, Democrats have seized on this opportunity or what they perceive to be an opportunity, seized on this issue to, to beat up Russell, who was in the studio yesterday here at the Oklahoman, uh, to defend himself on, on tax reform, along with some other issues. And probably you see a story on that uh, here tomorrow or the next day. Um, the Democrats really seem to think that this is a chance to uh, to take some shots at Steve Russell uh, on after he supported um, the House tax reform effort last week. Well, and I mean, you, when you really think about it, I mean, there's not a lot of opportunities to take shots if you're Democrats, and I don't mean that to to imply that that Russell is shot proof. What I mean is, um, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, he's a fairly quiet representative, member of Congress, especially when yeah. you think about the fact that he represents, you know, the largest metro in, in the state. Um, he's not a guy that goes out and takes a lot of uh, risky positions or positions that even hint at being risky. Um, you know, he's not necessarily, I mean, I guess you could run against him as some members of Congress will will face, uh, you know, maybe this idea of an anti-Trump administration, but uh, that's not necessarily a great 
platform to go on considering Trump won the district. I'm suppo- I suppose there's some other areas where maybe you can drum up some support if you're Democrats on an anti-Trump um, you know, campaign. But uh, I mean, yeah, you don't usually talk policy this early. But at the same time, if Democrats are trying to get um, – you know, a foot in the door and trying to, you know, get some distance between them and and their their opponent. Uh, I mean, there's not very many opportunities right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Healthcare was healthcare, a big opportunity. Yeah. And the, the the Republican healthcare repeal bills did not pull very well. So that was probably their best opportunity. Tax reform's a little more popular. It depends where you are. It depends what poll you're looking at, frankly. And I haven't seen a poll locally. And it's, I should say that. But I would imagine tax reform is going to be more popular, certainly, than the health care bills. Um, so we'll see if that has the same effect. I mean, they really jumped on health care, uh, Democrats did, really here and nationwide, as an opportunity to beat up um, the Republican incumbent. And uh, they're trying on tax reform. So I don't know how much that's going to stick with people, but they're, they're certainly uh, putting on some quite a few uh, public statements here in the last week or so. Well, and like you said earlier, whatever comes out of the Senate is going to have to come back to the House for a vote. I mean, I can't really think of a scenario in which a, a tax reform bill um, would draw no vote from Russell. No, it, it would be, yeah, I mean, he's he's been pretty, unless they just radically change the bill to the point that it's not a, a tax cut or something, <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to see uh, Congressman Russell voting against that. So if it, it drags out for a while and then it doesn't pass, that would be uh, damaging, I think, to anyone who, or probably just about any Republican, much like the health care bill, because people got to look at it, they heard all the bad things about it, and then it didn't pass anyway, so uh, Republicans aren't going to be thrilled because it failed, and Democrats aren't thrilled because you even tried and they didn't like it, so you could have Republicans staying home. I mean, the health care debate was so bad for Republicans in Congress, Uh they really don't want to repeat that on tax reform. They need a victory somewhere to keep their base and keep Republicans happy um, because Democrats are going to oppose the bill and they're going to be angry that you even brought it up and even voted for it. But then Republicans are going to be angry if you, if it doesn't pass. So they really need a victory here on tax reform um, or you're going to start seeing some ramifications for the next year's races. Yeah, well, they need to win, and they need to win quick because it's yeah. not, I mean, as hard as it is to get something passed today, it's going to be even harder three months from now, six months from now, almost yeah. impossible 10 months from now. And so as we get into that election year, uh, you know, it's it's going to be pretty quiet. It's already quiet, um, but this is, this is the time to do it. I think the clock is running out, and there's not as much time on the clock as people might think considering the elections are still a year, a year away. Um, well, speaking of things getting tougher in election year, let's talk about the state legislature here a little bit, the special mm-hmm. session yeah. that ended. Another one is coming. Uh, Governor Fallon uh, vetoed major parts of the legislature's budget bill that was looking to fill about a $215 million budget hole. That hole that's left is about 110. So uh, still a pretty major hole. And the legislature is going to be facing some of the similar problems when they convene for their regular session in just two months. Man, this <laughs> is uh, – it's, it's been nonstop. Yeah. Um, so um, we talked I – th- I think we talked last week, if I'm thinking of the calendar, right? We talked about the, the budget veto last, last week, which was a pretty bold move, I think, on the governor's part. And I don't think it's an, over, uh, an overstatement to say that is maybe one of the, the boldest moves, if not the boldest move that she's made as governor um, to uh, really say to the legislature, no, I'm not going to accept this. Um, was the veto Friday night after our 
After was we it? podcasted? Maybe it was. I I'm believe so. <laughs> I feel like we've been living in Vito world for longer than that. So maybe we haven't talked about that. Vito so let's, world. So let's, talk, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, this is a governor that, um, you know, she's not been, I know, and I'm not trying to, to assess in a positive or negative term, but she's never really been one that's really banged her bully pulpit that much. Right. Um, she's more of a relational politician. Um, she's a su- successful politician. She's never lost an election um, in the legislature for for Congress and, and for governor. Um, but she's not one that really rattles the cages of the legislature to 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 get her her agenda passed. And we've seen, especially over the last few years, she's come out in a special session the le- or in a in the. Um, state of the state address the legislature kind of pauses to listen to her she she puts out her platform and it almost never gets accepted or adopted i mean legislature just kind of quickly goes back to their business um she has said in recent years that she doesn't want to make cuts and then she she does approve a, a budget that makes some cuts um so this is i think one of the most boldest moves um for her and she's probably you know thinking of you know, a little bit of her legacy as she enters mm. her, she get re- gets ready to end the last year of her eight years in office um, coming up against term limits next year. And so there is a little bit of a legacy th- uh, creating move, I think, here. Um, and then this week, maybe we saw a little bit of uh, a political gamesmanship in her executive order calling for, so the specifics of it is basically school districts that spend less than 60% of their budget on instructional costs, which are teachers and classroom materials, um, would be required to uh, adopt some kind of consolidation plan. And and that's not necessarily consolidating the whole school districts, but maybe consolidating use of a superintendent and other administrators to where you'd see several districts sharing a superintendent, those kind of things. Um, why I say a little bit of political gamesmanship is because some of the votes that the legislature needs to, in order to pass that th- that uh, threshold to to increase taxes, include some very conservative members who have regularly called for the consolidation of school districts. So a lot of people, some people suspect that this is just a, this is kind of a move to say, okay, I'm going to throw you a bone. We're moving in that direction. Um, you know, come with me on this one. I'm yeah. not sure that that's enough to get them to go for what some of them see as radical. Um, tax hikes. Um, but it, it seems like it's it's a move in that direction. Uh, I'm working with uh, the Oklahomans uh, K-12 through uh, beat reporter Tim Willard for a story in, in Thursday's paper. Essentially, every school district is below that 60% threshold. And even if you moved mm. every single dollar from the administrative uh, category to instruction, um, almost every school, di- or most school districts would still be below that 60%. So it's really kind of unclear what the specific ramifications of this would be. Um, but right now, it seems to be a nod to some members um, that have been pretty stubborn on the budget vote. So they're under 60% and they would need to come up with this plan? The the way the executive order is written is that they would be, the, the State Department of Ed would, would compile this list. Those that are under 60% would come up with their own consolidation plan. If they refuse to or don't, then the state would, would intervene right. and, uh, and, and, hmm. and you know, essentially force them to do so. What has been the response? Have you had a chance to talk with districts? And I... <laughs> I asked, not because I, do, I doubt that you're working, but because <laughs> this is not a good week for that. I mean, this is not a great time. I, mean, it's a lot of, I imagine a lot of school officials are not around right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I've talked to several, and there's obviously been a lot of chatter online and social media. Um, I mean, I haven't seen a, a superintendent or school official that is for, is, is, is for this. Um, and a lot will tell you. I mean, and I think here, as someone who covers education like I do— um, you know, a lot. Your, your average Oklahoman probably considers when they hear instructional costs 
and then everything else, they think, okay, money that's going to teachers and money that's going to administrators, meaning superintendents and, and, and those at the top of the food chain for school districts. Is that not right? Well, it's not. It's it's an incomplete picture. Okay. Um, when you know, if, if schools, if a classroom is getting sixty percent of the funding, forty percent is not going to superintendent. The, the majority of that forty percent is going to things like teachers' aides, bus drivers, uh, counselors, mm-hmm. librarians, custodians, keeping the lights turned on. You know, all these other things. And uh, and talking to some superintendents, they'll tell you, like, listen, you know, hey, we're hiring more teachers' assistants so that we can increase increase class sizes because we're struggling yeah. to find teachers. Yeah. Um, but that teacher assistant isn't in, in considered a part of the instructional cost. Um, I had one superintendent tell me, like, you know, if you're a, if you're a school counselor, this is kind of a slap in the face because the state is essentially saying you are not a a um, a key uh, personnel member uh, for schools if we're not going to consider you to be a part of the instructional cost. Yeah. Um, so yeah, schools are schools are widely against it. I think what's interesting about her sixty percent threshold is that. It includes both urban and and uh, rural schools. Oklahoma City, at least by the data that we have from the state, is under sixty percent. I mean, so here you are telling the state's largest school district that they would essentially have to consolidate, hmm. um, you know, if if they're not able to to bring that up. Um, in the past, you've seen rural schools targeted for consolidation. Right. That's always a really yeah. tough sell. I mean, rural communities are are not fans of consolidation, um, and a lot of these small towns you go to across the state. The school is not just the the cultural hub and the social hub of the community. It's also the largest employer. Yep. Um, superintendents are um, popular figures in most towns, um, and one of the more you know dominant public figures that you'll find. In addition to you know maybe the mayor, the you know a sheriff or, or the chief of police, a superintendent not an elected position, but is is a pretty high-profile position. It's somebody you see quoted in the small-town newspaper quite a bit. And so um, it's always usually a hard tell, a hard sell in rural communities, which are typically conservative. I was going to say. That, and it's, and it's usually a conservative idea. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, but not something, you know, a lot of schools don't necessarily want to see their, their school consolidate. And another thing to keep in mind, and it may sound kind of silly, but if you're a small town and you have to consolidate with the nearest small town, Chances are that nearest small town is probably the school you least you like least in the state. <laughs> your this, rival. Is probably, yeah. this is probably your rival on Friday nights. <laughs> yep. um, so a lot of things like that that I think whenever you hear consolidation, I often hear, especially from educators from from small communities, saying, you know, this is this is a bunch of bureaucrats in Oklahoma City that don't get our way of life and are trying to force this on us. And, uh, and it's an important to, to note too that a lot of schools have consolidated. There are dozens of schools that do share superintendents. The state has mm-hmm. a has a program that pays for part of the salary of the superintendent if you'll share uh, with the neighboring neighboring district. And so there are fewer uh, school districts today than there were several years ago. And I think when we're talking about total consolidation, meaning consolidating districts, because we have over 500 districts, and that does sound like a lot, and maybe it is a lot, I don't know. Um, but you still have the same amount of students. And right now, Oklahoma's uh, funding structure is based on per-pupil spending. So you consolidate school districts, you don't change necessarily how much money goes to um, goes to students. And because superintendents and administrators are such a small am- amount of the overall funding pie, you don't really increase the per-pupil, um, you know, by that much. I, I, think, if, I think you increase it by $100 uh, per student. Um, if you take away every superintendent, every administrator across the state, when you know a hundred dollars out of several thousand dollars is not not really moving the needle that much, and then you don't have an administrator at all. 
So getting back to the governor's action here, do does she run the risk? I get the sense that she does, and I think she's done it a couple times here at these special sessions by overcomplicating things. Is a the legislature struggled to come up with and has outright failed to come up with new revenue. And she has, on several occasions, inserted education into that. I'm not saying it's unrelated. I'm not saying it's unimportant. But she did this with teacher pay, with the special session call. Uh, at a time when they had a lot of other things going on, she inserted teacher pay in. And again, I'm not saying it's unimportant or shouldn't be in there. But now she's done it again inserting education into um, the debate going on again before a second special session, does that run the risk of overcomplicating things and putting too much on a plate of a legislature that has um, not been able to handle the more immediate issues? And why give them uh, more to handle? Well, uh, that's a great question, and I I would think that maybe you know you ask for a mile and you celebrate when you get a foot kind of thing. I mean, you're trying to uh, you, you you know that you may not get your whole ask. Um, I always thought that when when she initially asked for the teacher pay raise, this was her way of saying like, listen, I'm not looking for just a band aid. Like, let's yes, let's solve this immediate budget hole, but let's also try to do some things that are going to carry us forward. So this special session isn't just about filling the budget hole now, but if you know we put a teacher pay raise in place. You know that's going to be something that is that lasts you know for several years, a generation. Right. So our, our work actually has more value beyond that. Teacher pay also polls pretty well, um, and I think it's easy to to forget that because last year's state question uh, went down um, that would fund a teacher pay raise for a lot of reasons. But people consistently say that teacher pay is an important issue, and a lot of the legislators that have won the special elections of the summer have said that's one of the most common things that they hear. Something that also polls well, or at least uh, uh, Oklahomans express some concern with, is the number of school districts. And, uh, and, and most Oklahomans aren't necessarily aware of the intricacies of school funding and school structure. When you hear that there's over 500 school districts, you think, in a state like Oklahoma, that's way too many. Yeah. And so, you know, I imagine she's not just trying to win over a few lawmakers. She's probably sending a message to the average Oklahoman that thinks, you know, there are too many school districts or there are too many superintendents and we do need to do something about that. So I don't think it's a politically risky move with the average voter. Um, it does, you know, poke a stick at the education establishment, um, which is somewhat powerful in this state as it is in most states. And so, uh, I mean, the State Department of Ed put out a statement last night saying, hey, she didn't even consult with us. I mean, they were somewhat critical of her. Um, I think the state superintendent, um, Joy Hoffmeister, has been fairly supportive of the governor and has, um, she represents kind of a constituency that has sometimes been pretty, uh, pretty vitriolic towards the legislature and the governor. Um, and Hoffmeister takes a more softer approach. And so I think, you know, do you risk maybe riling up the superintendent to where she becomes more of a, of a crusader against you? I don't know if it's going to go to that extreme. But, uh, but yeah, you are right. She has injected education, but education is something that people talk a lot about. And so, yeah. um, you know, is it politically risky? I mean, well, she's not facing an election, so there's no risk there. Um, the legislature already failed to, you know, to, to, to pass what she sees as a sensible budget. Um, so maybe she's thinking, what do I have to lose here? We've already, you know, we were already going to go, um, we already going to leave the special session, not with what I wanted. So, you know, let's, let's go around again. You know, one superintendent told me today that uh, he's like, you know, they're telling us that we're inefficient as schools 
you know, they just met for eight weeks and didn't get anything done. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the definition of an inefficiency in his mind. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it's received. Um, I think it will become an issue for candidates who are running for for the legislature. Um, I mean, it's not an issue for her because she's not on a ballot, but there are many others that are. And uh, now she's made, you know, school consolidation a, a, a relevant topic. Yeah, and I was thinking more that it'd be practically risky rather than politically yeah. risky to keep throwing out. Although, in either way, it's not risky for her because it's on the legislature to keep throwing them things out there, keep throwing out, you know, things that they should be doing. And then when they fail to do them, <laughs> Uh, that usually doesn't look very good for the legislature, but I mean, maybe there is a little gamesmanship there that they, they obviously have not done things the way that she thinks they should have been done. So you throw a few more ideas out there and when they fail to do them, you kind of let that sit for a while, but it, it would not be very good. It would seem for her party because Democrats are running on a failed legislature right mm-hmm. now. And when you give them more things to fail on, and if they True, do fail on them, then you are helping the, uh, her opposing party, the, I mean, the Democratic Party there. So Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, you know, I think she went from the veto that was a very strong move um, to where I think you could argue that the executive order, I don't want to say it's a weak move, but I mean, last week she was sending, I, I kind of sounded like a shot across the bow. I mean, she really needs a speaker to, to whip up some votes. And so maybe by vetoing the budget, she's saying, listen, if you if you care at all about your agenda next year, you know, that I've got to sign, um, unless you can get a veto-proof uh, vote, um, you know, I may, I may not go along with it. And then she turns around this week and kind of throws a bone to some of those stubborn members, or at least that's how it's being perceived by some. So she kind of goes from, like, you know, you know, you know, sending a shot across the bow to now saying, "Hey, here's a gift. <laughs> you know, here's a here's, here's a gift. Can we can we yeah. can we come back to the table and, and maybe work something out?" Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's not ending anytime soon. Um, Dale can attest to that, and not right now because he's working at the Capitol, yes, trying to yeah. chill, trying to cover that stuff. So, uh, well, we'll continue to follow it and see where this goes. Um, and it will be interesting to see the responses of lawmakers. Um, yeah, school's out right now, but uh, it hasn't been a hard time getting a hold of uh, a school official. I'm, I'm curious, though, th- to hear from lawmakers. Um, some of them have been a little bit harder to get a hold of. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've, you know, you see a lot of lawmakers right now saying that, uh, you know, kind of lamenting the fact that they're at the Capitol a lot these days and, and missing time with their family. Um, usually when they're running, they... They kind of talk about the sacrifice of, of getting yeah. their time with their family, and, and now it's kind of maybe hitting home a little bit. But uh, um, they're all home today. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast, a special Thanksgiving edition <laughs> um, or early edition on this Thanksgiving week. You can find this episode and all others on whatever podcast app you use. We're also at News OK. And we will be back again next week for The Oklahoman with Justin. I'm Ben. Thanks for listening. Happy, Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs>